that was one of the arguments that I would make to my dad because his thing would be like, okay, you can only play video games for one hour a night when you come home from school, right? But then he would come home from work and he would watch like an, you know, an indie car race or like a basketball game and or like, you know, a football game or something. And I would be like, why do you get to spend four hours in front of the TV you know, as a kid, right? I, this sounds so perfect in my head as a kid, as an adult, like, who am I as a kid to ask that, right? Oh, but, right. you know, as a kid, I'm like, hey, why do you get to spend four hours in front of the TV, but I can't spend more than an hour in front of the TV as well? Some episodes may contain adult themes or explicit language. Welcome to Pick Up Your Sticks, where we talk about why gaming matters with your host, Walker Neer and Brett Lindley. I'm Walker, and this week we are joined by Brian Anderson from Cystorm Gaming, which features players in Dota, StarCraft II, Counter-Strike Go, and Heroes of the Storm. If you'd like to support Pick Up Your Sticks, you can always buy us a cup of coffee at our Ko-Fi page, which is ko-fi slash pod. As always, I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Brett Lindley. How are you doing today, Brett? Back to esteemed. I was wondering if you were going to pick something else or if you were just going to completely ignore it, like that's dead now, or I, I apparently felt... I'm I'm back to being esteemed. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you feel good. And then as we said in our intro, we are joined by our special guest today, Brian Anderson from Cystorm Gaming. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Awesome, Great. man. So, Brian, uh, you have a really, really uh deep <laughs> to put it lightly relationship with esports um started out as a, a warcraft 3 pro uh went on to work with the esl and, and now work with with cystorm gaming um mm -hmm. but before we really get into your career as a, a professional in this space i just kind of want to start at the beginning what got you started gaming you know like with brett and i our dads were big gamers and kind of brought us up from <laughs> from diapers into video games Mm -hmm. What was it that got you into gaming as a kid? Um, you know, for me, I, I there wasn't really any like one defining moment where it was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. Like, especially as a kid, right? As a kid, there was just there were cool games and really cool consoles. And, you know, I wanted one. And like it was what a lot of my friends were doing and talking about. Right. You know, um, for me, my first console was the original Nintendo. And I think we had like two or three games on there. You know, one of them being like Techno Bowl. One of them was the uh, I think it was the original NES Zelda. And then we also had I want to say it was it was Mario World 3, the first one where he gets the raccoon tail. Right. Mm -hmm. yep, um, that's it. And I think that was like that was it for me in terms of games because uh, I didn't grow up very well off. So like getting a system in the first place was a really really big deal. Um, for the longest time, you know, my outlet for for trying games or playing games was going over to my friends' houses, right? And yeah. and so then eventually one year for my birthday, um, my parents got me the Nintendo and and we got those three games that year, and that carried me for a pretty long time, um, probably until I was probably until I was like seven or eight. And then, you know, we got the Super Nintendo and that that was like that was like going from kind of testing the waters with a regular Nintendo and in terms of me trying games and experiencing video games the first time to like that opened worlds for me legitimately. Right. Like right. I got to play Mega Man for the first time and I fell Aww. in love with that series, you know, Mega Man X. Yes. Um, I had all of those games. You know, I got into the original Ogre Battle and Final Fantasy games, 
And nice. that started my love for RPGs, which Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars still oh, so good. Like, stands so to good. the test of time to this day. Um, and then and then from there, obviously, right, the next progression was PC gaming, you know? Mm. Um, and, and for me, that didn't happen until I was, I was probably 11, um, mm. which, again, it was like a year or two later than most people that when they started getting pcs or, or games for them and the first pc game i ever got was command and conquer um which was awesome right uh and and i also got to try it a little bit like what introduced me to it was the, the n64 version and so mm -hmm. i my first so rts first. experience yeah dude oh. my first rts experience with command and conquer was was on a nintendo 64 controller and you um, couldn't get a worse controller for an rts <laughs> no no but i didn't know any better at the time either i thought it was the right. most amazing thing right i was like it free movement the joystick itself was was totally revolutionary for mm -hmm. nintendo because they had the d-pads for the longest time right um so like that was a that was a huge deal for me and and then i guess from there it was just to online gaming right so like my first online game I ever played was Heroes of Might and Magic 3. I don't know if you guys are nice. familiar with that. Nope. I think I started was... with 4. Yeah. But, yeah. So, like, that game was my first experience with LAN. And that was, that mm. was like, me getting my mom and my friend's mom or dad to help them and call each other and set up, like, the personal one-to-one -one LAN connection where if either of our parents got a phone call, it disrupted <laughs> the game and it corrupted the file and it was done and, like, you had to start all the way over. And like that was that was a, I mean that was a really unique experience. You know, I think a lot of a lot of people coming up in gaming today they can't relate to a lot of that stuff, but like it, it felt like the hacker man moment in movies as a child yes. when like you get to experience the online arena for the first time because it's just that didn't exist before, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so that was like that was that was another wave of doors opening for me in terms of gaming and like getting interested and involved in it right and so then from there from the heroes of might and magic experience um you know i did brood war and you know or rather starcraft and brood war and then warcraft 2 and then eventually warcraft 3 and and battlenet right and so from there obviously everything got like much more intense and serious but in terms of starting out i started out as a totally average console gamer right I, I didn't get super hardcore into pc until even after right you know brood war was already relatively popular and and even there are like already established warcraft 3 pros for example when i started trying to consider competing and consider trying to play a game at a higher level um so i had like that first generation of players to kind of look back on and then and then take my chances in terms of transitioning from a, a casual fan of video games and gaming into like you know considering making it a career um yeah and and i think for me like the the next logical progression there would be kind of how the people in my life thought of that right yeah. um i don't know if how your guys's experiences are but for me it was really gaming was really divisive in my family mm -hmm. so my dad is like very, very old school, traditional construction worker, right? Um, you know, technology is something that just, it didn't click with him. Um, and then my mom was the opposite. She was really, really supportive. She thought it was cool that I liked gaming and she thought gaming itself was like this really interesting thing. So it would be, it would be like a compromise between my parents of like one person really wanting to push me to do something that I really enjoyed and liked and the other one trying to keep me a little bit more grounded 
you know, of like, hey, you need to focus on school, you need to get a diploma, you need to one day think about going to college, right, and, and all of that. Um, and so that was a really interesting environment to live in, because I would spend a lot of time explaining gaming to my mom. And, and that was like, you know, she was like my ally in that regard. So I'm explaining to her like, oh, man, this was so cool. You know, I got to play with these three other people all across the world. One's in Europe and one's in South America and one's in like Canada or South Korea or something. Right. <clears throat> and like it was just this amazing, cool thing to me. And then with my dad, it was like a different kind of explanation. You know, it was, I promise you, I'm not wasting my life kind of explanation. I played, it was, I it was played very a typing much... mini game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was a math it, mini game. <laughs> yeah. The, um, what was it? Uh, number cruncher, right? The old, the old, the old PC games we learned in school. Um, so like for my dad, it was very much, uh, you know, he had the mentality of like, you, you spend all day in front of a TV or a computer, you know, you're wasting your life, that, that whole stigma, right? Um, so that was definitely really interesting to, to deal with just growing up in gaming, even before I ever got into esports or took it seriously. That was something that I was kind of having to navigate, right? And I think for most people our age, like, like in the, in the realm of like 25 and maybe a little bit older, right? Because I'm 31 myself. I think all of us mm -hmm. dealt with that in some capacity, whether it was from family members or friends or significant others, right? Teachers. Where it was like, exactly, right? Where we had this thing that that we really liked and was really cool, we were really excited about, but they just didn't get this thing. Like it, it didn't compute for them or they didn't understand it or they had never experienced it. So I think anybody that came up in, in kind of gaming culture or like identified as a gamer so to say right like that was what they spent most of their time doing i think everyone has experienced that to some degree where you've kind of had to explain what it is that you love and you're passionate about but also much more so back in the day compared to now but justify it too that was that was a really wow. really big conversation that i would especially when i was in high school and started you know considering warcraft 3 and competing like it's really difficult to try and point to a history that doesn't exist in esports and yeah. say like, Hey, you know, I can make a career of it. Whereas now it's completely different. Now there's, there's teams with salaries, there's $40 million tournaments, there's, you know, full fledged professions and, and an entire ecosystem built around it. Um, so there's like a, there's a lot of stuff to pull from now that you can reference. Whereas back then it was very much a project of passion and, and it was kind of, I guess, like carving out our own form of acceptance from all of our peers, right? Right. You didn't have to justify, like, I want to play piano or be in the arts because people just exactly. knew what that was. Like, so, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and like for my dad, right, one of the one of the easiest ways that I would try and get him to understand, because I think people like my dad were the, the most difficult people to try and make accept and then also just ha have any idea of what it was like gaming and then this form of technology right so like for him the parallels i would draw would be like to traditional sports because he loved basketball and football right so you know if if it was warcraft 3 or i'm also a really really big mmo player so like world of warcraft was also a huge part of my life for a long time you know and i would equate that to team sports like hey you know we have these challenges that as a group we're trying to overcome and like these puzzles that we have to work out, you know, this person has to stand in this spot and execute this function. This person has to handle this responsibility and so on and so forth. And I would try and like parallel that to, to, 
to traditional sports, right? I would be like, we have the healers and the DPS and the people that are organizing them and the raid leaders. And this is all going over his head, right? But what he could see was that it was something I cared about. And it was something that wasn't just like another thing, you know, as a kid that you go through, like, I want to do right. this thing. And then you commit a week or two to it and then on to the next thing and on to the next thing. But for me, it was, it was, a uh, it was a constant in my life for as long as I can remember. And I think for someone like my dad, the combination of all of those things, right, trying to explain it to them, trying to draw the parallel between things that they care about, you know, that being traditional sports, and then also trying to show them that I wasn't <laughs> just wasting my life, right? Like, the combination of all of that, I think, finally helped him come around a bit. And then also, more importantly, something I didn't realize until I was in a position at ESL and like dealing with sort of industry professionals on a more regular basis was that that served me incredibly well because it let me practice um, explaining something that I have a deep understanding of to people that don't, right? You have clients come in and want to get involved in esports. They just know that esports is this really hot topic. It's this really hot button topic that, you know, they can get a lot of brand value and ROI in. Everybody wants to get involved in it. But the big problem is that most people don't know what they want to do. They just know that they want to be involved. And so being able to connect that bridge has served me so well in my career. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I had to put so much effort and thought into trying to, I mean, like we said, right, justify it to my dad and then explain it to my mom. Um, yeah, so like, that's kind of, that's kind of like the, I guess the summary of, of how I got interested in gaming and, and then, you know, early on in terms of how I had to navigate that realm of taking it a bit more obsessively than a lot of other people, so to say. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, it's remarkable how, uh, so Brett and I are a few years older than you. Um, but a lot of parallels in <laughs> the story you shared, with how you were introduced to gaming and how mm -hmm. it was perceived. I mean, for me, it was the opposite. My dad, again, he was the one that hooked me up with consoles. And I mean, to this day, my mom still <laughs> very anti-gaming. Yep. Now I've never tried to be a pro gamer or something, so I didn't have to <laughs> explain it in that context. But um, but yeah, definitely something that I think something that drives me insane. And it's part of the reason that we started this show and, and the, the, the theme of it is why gaming matters is because, especially for people around our age, video games were always made analogous to uh, TV, right? Like, you know, if you're sitting watching TV, it's the same yep. as playing a video game. And it's like, it is so much more interactive <laughs> mm -hmm. to play a video game than to passively consume some television show. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely, I think we get where you're coming from there. That was actually, like, it's funny that you mentioned that because, like, at least in my household, that was one of the arguments that I would make to my dad because his thing would be like, okay, you can only play video games for one hour a night when you come home from school, right? But then he would come home from work and he would watch, like, an, you know, an indie car race or, like, a basketball game and or, like, you know, a football game or something. And I would be like, why do you get to spend four hours in front of the TV you know, as a kid, right? I, this sounds so perfect in my head as a kid, as an adult, like who am I as a kid to ask that? Right. Oh, but, right. You know, as a kid, I'm like, Hey, why do you get to spend four hours in front of the TV? But I can't spend more than an hour in front of the TV as well. But like when, you know, I know explain when you're watching TV, you're just, you're just watching it. You're relaxing. You might be thinking about what you're watching, but like when I'm playing a game, I'm, I'm, trying to solve problems, right? There's there's issues I have to overcome. There's things I have to prepare for. There's things I have to put thought into. It's like, it's an activity as opposed to 
um, sort of being able to turn your brain off and relax. Like there are games where you can do that, right? But I mean, at, at the point where I was trying to have this conversation with my dad, I was I was getting involved in you know StarCraft and Warcraft Three and stuff. So I was trying to explain it in a bit more of a different sense. There's um, no consequences if you guess wrong the Who Done It on Law and Order. Yeah, while you're watching TV. But if you if you run the raid wrong, everybody wipes. So. Yeah, and then that's a waste of everyone's time, and then you get to hear about it for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there's there's a ton of directions that I kind of want to go because you've, you've brought up a lot of interesting points and a lot of things that I, I'm actually kind of surprised we haven't talked about on the show before. Um, but I'm just going to kind of pick one and, and keeping things at least somewhat more recent. Um, I'm really interested in you made the parallel between kind of explaining gaming to both a parent that kind of understood or at least supported you and, and mm-hmm. wanted to know more about it, as well as a parent that uh, was a little bit more, like you said, conservative and having a little bit more hesitancy with allowing you to experience that and making brand deals and and mm-hmm. working in the esports scene. And I think that that's something that a lot of people that even people that are aware of esports and like esports and see, you know, brand logos on things and, you mm-hmm. know, Rocket League partners with NASCAR to, to do something. But is there any amount of kind of behind the scenes? Of course, you know, specifics probably can't be shared and things like that. But what does something like that look like or what kinds of involvement have you had in that types of like more business related esports content? Yeah, um, I can I can speak to this quite a bit. Um, obviously, some specifics, right? I, I can't go over in too much detail, but I think I can paint a good enough picture here. Um, for me specifically in the industry, the the career that that I have and have operated under for the past, let's say, seven to eight years, has specifically been league operations. So what that entails and what that means is that. Um, when there's a, a large project like such as a pro league or an event that we want to put on, I will design the rulebook in the format, um, working with my colleagues, right, to do so. And then I will hire and train the admin staff that are going to execute the event. And then I'll also be working side by side with the admin staff during the event. Um, now, each of those has has tons of different directions that they spiderweb into, right? So to give a quick example, one difference between planning an online event versus a live event is going to be that you're you're adding a physical aspect. So that could be, you know, the temperature of the venue. Players might be too cold. It could be a lighting fixture that is meant to give a really good camera shot, but when that lighting fixture goes at a certain angle, now it's a glare in the player's eyes. Um, it could be security, whether that is player security, staff security, or the security of the tournament integrity, right? Um, Another example of that would be that before we allow players to come on stage, right, we confiscate all of their cell phones. They can't have a watch on, for example. We wand them with a metal detector just to make sure that there's nothing on their persons that can transmit or receive any sort of message or information right i mean we've all seen like the hollywood movies of you know the 21 and the poker guys with the morse code tappers on tape to their leg and stuff like that i think the thing for for what my position is is not necessarily having to identify every single thing that people are actively doing to cheat or break tournament integrity it's about trying to give them as little room as possible to operate in 
because when it comes to when it comes to like the sort of cat and mouse cops and robber type relationship between you know players that are going to break a rule or cheat and then the people that are enforcing those rules and cheating it's just non-stop reiteration right they might invent a new way to receive a signal on stage um and we might invent a new way to prevent that and then it's up to them to find a new way to do it and then it's a constant cycle right so so a lot of my focus in terms of integrity physically is about minimizing the opportunity that people can can sort of you know navigate outside of the rule set um and, and there's a ton of things to consider, right? I've already listed a couple. Some some additional ones might be physical signaling from fans in the venue, right? That's something we need to be aware of. That's one of the reasons that we have admins on stage with players at all times. It's it's not only so that when an issue goes wrong, they're the first um, they're the first instance that a player will interact with, right? So if it's something where a player, let's say they intentionally pause because they want to discuss something with their team, well, the admin's going to be right there on stage to say, what's the issue? Why is it paused? And if they don't give an adequate answer, we'll level you a punishment against them for it, right? Because they're abusing the system to try and have an extra advantage of planning a little bit more before a, a specific moment or like a critical moment or something like that, right? Um, the, the other instance is also so that when something does go wrong, the admins on stage are trained to address most immediate issues, right? If it's a tech issue in the sense of the game crash, the admin knows how to handle that, right? If it's, oh, this player can't hear, you know, player B on TeamSpeak, the admin knows how to do a quick shoot of that, you know, a troubleshoot of that. But if it's, if it's something that escalates past a quick troubleshoot, that's when we start looping in other departments, right? So... For the player cams, for example, that are at live events that capture the players, those get moved all the time because players are adjusting in their desk and you know they slouch forward, they sit back. And that's something that every single match has to be readjusted because you have a new player there. And then if they have a hype reaction moment that has to be readjusted, and that's the admins doing that, right? Because they're on stage, but they're coordinating with production, right? And so that's one line that is right there, where your your part of your job is not just uh, officiating the event, but it's also kind of being the quality control for all the other departments that can't physically be on stage with you. Um, so you're also the go-to for tech, like I mentioned. And then if we can't do a quick troubleshoot of that, then we escalate it to the engineering department, who will actually have a guy, you know, come on stage, look at the computers more in depth, maybe run, you know, some software checks on the computers, whatever it may be. Um, and so that will be the first kind of stopgap between all instances of players and every other facet of production. Um, and then also, you know, same thing for them, where if a player has an issue and they want to escalate it, you know, some of the examples I mentioned earlier, lights or temperature are like the most common ones. Um, they come to us and then we escalate those issues to production and we try and find a happy compromise. Now, a lot of times those compromises can't happen from a production standpoint, right? And and one example I'll use is because I'm sure there will be players that might listen to this. So you players out there for context, we try and explain it every time, but the temperature issue, this is why it exists, right? When you're in a studio space with hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that's running hours before the event starts and then hours after the event ends, it can get really, really, really hot really 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 fast so they they have to pump high power acs through the building way ahead of time to make sure that the temperature 
maintains a level that is acceptable for the equipment to operate on um, for the entire duration of the show, right? It wouldn't make sense for us to start the show, have things get really hot and uncomfortable or maybe equipment fail and then turn the air conditioner on to address that. So it's one of those things where we have to be proactive on shows to do it. And one of the consequences of that is that for, for medium sized to small size venues, it can be excruciatingly cold. Like I will be on stage shivering with two hoodies, two shirts, sweatshirts, and jeans. Like, and it, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Because that's just, that's the environment that you have to operate and work in. Um, and so like, there will be challenges there, right? Where from a player perspective, that feels really unfair. Why do I have to compete in an environment for my career that is uncomfortable, that I'm physically shivering in potentially, right? If it's really bad, you know, maybe the setup isn't exactly what it was communicated to be, whatever the issue may be, right? Where now as they have a legitimate dispute for that to, to raise that issue and escalate that issue. But then again, right, it's a, it's a realm of compromise. At the end of the day, some things we can work on, some things we can't. We, with the temperature issue, there's nothing we can do. If we want the equipment to run, that temperature is what it'll be. And, and you can try and do things. You can provide them extra hand warmers, right? You can get them cups of hot water. You can make sure you, maybe we get like an ESL branded hoodie when I was at ESL, right? And hey, you can wear this and then I'll give you a signal when the camera's gonna come on you and you take it off beforehand so your jersey's on. We'll find ways to compromise with them. But um, I mean, at the end of the day, just for a show to happen, there are things that have to be done a certain way and there's, there's no room for compromise there. So, so you're saying is, is players should start high altitude training in the Alps in the they same should. way that they, absolutely that they should. train for like sport, like, like, like weightlifting sports, you know, you do like high altitude lifting and stuff like, like just, you know, if you can, if you can hike Mount Everest in your shorts, then you can play Starcraft on. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, all joking aside, right. One of the conditioning regiments that a lot of top teams will do, um, or at least if they're not, you know, they should be doing it. But like, for example, Dota players, a lot of them will do environmental conditioning where it sounds way more intense than it is, right? Environmental conditioning. But in reality, what it is, is exactly what you're describing. You do two scrims back to back with the temperature freezing in, you know, your team house. And then you do two scrims where it's insanely hot. You do two scrims where, you know, you adjust the blinds on the window. So a glare is on part of your screen and you do two scrims where, you know, you adjust your seat so that it's not at your perfect comfort level. And the reason for this is that when you go to an event, you're never going to be able to replicate the perfect, comfortable environment that is your home. And that's where, for for some professional players, that's kind of where their careers struggle a bit, is that transition from being excellent at home, online, in their comfort zone, to being able to replicate that performance in a physical land environment. And part of that is because of the environment they're in, right? They're nervous, they're uncomfortable, there's a crowd, there's a production staff that they're working with. They might be in a different time zone, jet lagged, and then all of the issues we raised before. So I think part of a team's responsibility is conditioning your players for that. Condition them to be ready so that, you know, I. You shouldn't expect them to be 100% in every single environment, but maybe instead of operating at a 60% when they're freezing, they can operate at a 85 or a 90. And that advantage might be the difference between going to a round of eight or a round of four, you know, as opposed to getting eliminated in a round of 16 or a round of 32. It's a really small, minute difference, but when you when you're comparing competitors at a world class level in anything, not just esports, it those it's those little edges that start to add up.
right? If every single player you're playing is in the top, you know, one percentile or whatever, then those little itty bitty things that they do, working on their mental game, environmental conditioning, making sure that they their team is sending them to a LAN ahead of time so that they're not jet lagged, right? Things like this um, are little advantages and edges that that as teams, I think personally, are like it's your responsibility to help your player go through that process so that when they do arrive at a LAN environment, they're able to just focus on being the best player they can be, full stop. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point that you bring up because I think that, you know, um, and to your point, not just with esports, but when someone doesn't succeed on what we'll call the big stage, right, the tournament or, or whatever it may be, there's this, the, the narrative that always emerges from that is that they mentally weren't tough enough or, or something along those lines, right? Like they, 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 their nerves got the best of them or they weren't able to handle the pressure of the moment. And certainly that can be a factor in it. But what you're pointing to is that there's also just a lot of very literal physical things that can be impacting them that also could be affecting, you know, how they're thinking. Um, so yeah, the, the training you're talking about. Oh yeah. Makes it a ton of sense. And it's everything too. Right. And like we hear about on like, you know, sports center and ESPN when an NBA team or, or whoever will travel to an away game and they get like food poisoning or something, or they eat, you know, bad food at the hotel. Um, and that's like, that's always like a funny meme. And then, you know, they have like the nice little 10 second pan shot of the player at the game, just looking miserable, <laughs> you know, on the court, hating their life. It's very much the same thing with esports and pro players to a degree. Right. I mean, for a lot of these players outside of North America, at least, you know, they're they're going to environments where um, a lot of the cuisine that they're used to eating is not readily available. Right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even if it is readily available, maybe the catering for the event has only specific types of meals that they're giving out every single day. And, and maybe the hotel only offers specific things. Right. Maybe you don't have time to go out and get the kind of food that you want every single day because, you know, you're on set or at the at the production for 14 hours, whatever it may be. So all these little factors, they're very real things that players have to deal with, right? Um, we've had players at shows where they say like, hey, I'm not going to eat this or I'm not going to eat period until after I play. Because if they eat and it's something that disagrees with them, that's not worth the risk of, of getting sick, you know, mid-match. And we have, without naming specifics or, or even naming specific games, that is something that has happened. We have had players get sick on stage mid-match, right? We've had in between games, you know, an admin run out with a trash can, the player gets sick, clean them up a little bit, make sure they're okay, you know, ask them if they need an extra minute. Because with production, we can always throw to breaks. We can always have the casters fill. You can throw an ad, you know, deliverable, a video, whatever from the client. Like, that's okay. But we can't do it indefinitely, right? Again, that compromise has to exist. So you know, it might be something where the admin helps them, cleans them up, gets them to the bathroom, gets a trash can to them. They do their business and then we just go on and continue. But those, those, um, like all those elements from outside of competing creep their way into impacting the competitor and, in a huge, huge amount of ways, just all across the board. Right. Um, maybe it's not food. Maybe it's their sleep schedule. Right. Maybe we have, Maybe we have Nurcio coming over from, you know, Eastern Asia, and then he comes to North America, and he only has two days to acclimate. And then now when he's normally supposed to be sleeping, he's supposed to play the most important BlizzCon match of that year, right? And so, like, 
that also can be incredibly jarring for players. So there's there's a lot of outside factors that influence a player's experience at a tournament. And part of, I think, the responsibility of, of the player's team that pays them, and then also the tournament organizer, is to mitigate those in, those like outside impacting factors as much as possible, right? Um, whether it be you consider their dietary restrictions, whether it be you know you can bring them out earlier so that the time zone switch isn't as damning for them, right? Whether it be that we can create a comfortable environment that replicates what their prefer preferences. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can do to try and address those issues. But I think the important thing is is trying to address them in the first place and then also communicating that to players like hey man i know this sucks you know we only had pizza on today for the catering and, and you specifically said you know you only want rice and beef and and we're going to make sure that we're going to have that on the catering for tomorrow but it couldn't happen today right so like communicating that to players also goes a really long way with trying to reassure them like hey you know we're making sure that you're not just fucked we're going to do everything that we can to help you but there are some things that can't change and this is what you're going to have to just accept and deal with you know and then we'll get feedback from them and move forward from there right but again it's it's a lot of compromise um i think i deviated from the original question which was <laughs> you know which was teams and, and their impact and then also um me being a, in in that position and i guess like the the impact of players and those environmental factors but it, it's kind of a it's a responsibility of everybody involved to help mitigate that for players, right? Because from a tournament operator perspective, we want the best competition possible. We want the most hype games, you know, in a perfect world, every match goes to game five. They're insane, you know, um, back and forth matches, no stomps like that. And, and you want that experience. But then from a team owner perspective, you want the total opposite. You want quick stomps, you know, no competition. There was no chance of the other player to, to even take a game off your guy. You want them to go to the, you know, the top, win the event, and then get back home and prepare for the next one. Um, and, and so it's even though both the tournament operator and the teams share their responsibility, their reasons for sharing that responsibility are very different, right? Um, so yeah, like because the tournament operator wants everyone to be on an even playing field and wants the players to succeed, but the team owners or the teams themselves, they want the players to have the best edge possible to compete, which means them having the best environment to compete in as possible. So even though we want the same things more often than not, how we go about trying to accomplish those things um, are very, very different. And then, you know, of course, the teams have to work very close in hand with the tournament operators to make these events happen more often than not, especially in terms of paying out players or scheduling flights and hotels, you know, media day appearances, things like that. So it's, it's a constant tug of war in terms of prioritizing what can realistically be done for everybody, you know, even playing, even playing field for everyone. And then what is like, what needs to be taken into consideration and maybe implemented later, or maybe explain to them like, Hey, this can't happen for X, Y, and Z reason. Right. Hey Walker, do you know our podcast is almost big enough to start selling ads? Yeah, I had noticed that. So what do you think? Should we go mattress company, VPN, some mobile game? Uh, I was kind of thinking maybe coffee. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some good free trade local. No, 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 like Ko-Fi, like donations. Oh, oh, right. So so we, we do ads for Ko-Fi and for coffee? I mean, I guess that could work, but I was thinking that people could support the show with really small donations about the cost of a cup of coffee, and then we could skip talking 
talking about mattress companies or mobile games and just keep all of that content out of the show, uh, they can just head over to our Ko-Fi page over at ko-fi.com slash P-U-I-S-Pod and contribute to us there. Oh, I get it. So you're saying even if our listeners donated a single dollar over at ko-fi.com slash P-U-I-S-Pod, it would go a long way towards funding the podcast. And in the future, we could even offer cool things like merch or rewards and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's definitely one way that we can pay our bills, keep our mics hot, and keep the show going. And if they can't donate, that's okay too. Let's just let them get back to enjoying the show. Yeah, no, that's that, that's all very, very insightful and, and, and uh, definitely uh, <laughs> a very interesting perspective because um, obviously not, not very many people are involved in <laughs> organizing tournaments at the level that you've been with your involvement with ESL. And so I'm actually curious to, to go back to your story a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we mentioned at the top and, and you spoke to a little bit and talking about your, your start with gaming that you were a Warcraft 3 pro. So how long were you a Warcraft 3 pro? And then how did you kind of determine that you were going to transition out of that and into the tournament organizing side with the ESL? Uh, yeah, so I would say I was officially a pro for about a year. Um I mean, I, I say a year just for easy sake, but in, in reality, I think it was like 10 and a half months, um, which was great, right? It was a great opportunity. But the, the harsh reality is, is that I was never, never going to win a championship as a Warcraft 3 player, right? I was middle of the pack at best. And even then, when it came to international play, I, I don't even think I would consider myself middle of the pack, right? Like I, I would be severely outclassed by all the four king players, you know, Roddy and Grubby, for example, right? I would be severely outclassed by a lot of the Chinese and Korean players. Um, and I could do like okay in like North American regional events and, and North American tournaments, you know, in-house leagues and things like that. So I kind of knew that I was I was good enough to be in the conversation, but I knew I was never going to be good enough to like, at least for what it was at the time, make a career out of playing. Because even, even the people that were at the the tip top of each competitive game back then you weren't making a living from competing you weren't making a living from salaries or anything like that like the salary that i got when i was signed was for no money at at all it was for event support so they they gave me multiple events a year that they would pay for me to go to and and i couldn't go to them otherwise basically is what it amounted to right so like you know they would pay for me to go to wcg san francisco and i would have a hotel room there and they paid for the train ticket because i lived in sacramento at the time which is in northern california right and you know then if there was an event outside of california they would pay for the flight and the hotel and you know give me a little bit of stipend money for food things like that and and that was basically the extent of of what my agreement was which also for the time was pretty ludicrous. That was like a really, really good deal. And I was really lucky because um, Brad Dick, the owner of Eximius, he wanted to get involved in Warcraft 3 and RTS. And I had known of him through like friends that were involved in the FPS scene because where his team operated was Day of Defeat and Counter-Strike 1.6. That was like their big games where they had pro teams in. Um, and so I was like their first foray into, into sort of the RTS. And he was, I was pretty blunt with him, you know, when I had the conversation, you know, kind of, I, I maybe embellished myself a little bit more, right. In terms of like, I didn't say like I was completely middle of the pack, but I let him know like, Hey, realistically, I'm probably never going to win a WCG, right? Like I'm not going to be taking home a trophy under your team's name, but for him, it was more about being in the space, being involved in RTS. And then, and then he also, I guess, 
saw enough in me that he wanted to give me the opportunity and the chance to develop a bit more, which I was always really appreciative of because, you know, from a practical point of view, from a business standpoint, and I can speak to this now, right? That makes no sense whatsoever. You know, you're, you're paying for something that is never going to develop into a world champion. And that person is also telling you that. So that's, that's like a really hard investment to look at and justify long-term. But from like a, a, an industry and then a personal point of view, you know, that opportunity to me might be the reason I'm even talking to you guys right now, right? It might be the reason why I was able to, to work at ESL and, and get hired and do a bunch of different events is because, you know, Brad gave me that chance. He gave me that opportunity and that let me experience it from the player's point of view. And then that player's perspective has served me immensely well as a league operator, where my job is, is, you know, being an arbiter for the players and being the go-between for players and staff, right? Because I already know what they would want because I can just put myself in their shoes since I, I did walk that path a little bit and that's helped me immensely. So, um, that was kind of how it started. And, and back then, you know, it was, it was very different too. You win a tournament, you didn't more often than not, you'd never got paid for it. Right. That just didn't happen. Um, and then, and then sometimes it wouldn't even be a, a monetary prize money, right? You win a tournament, you get a graphics card or grats. Here's a mouse pad. Congratulations. Like, thanks for, you know, driving six hours. We appreciate you. <laughs> like, and like, that's really it. That that was, that was what it was in really, really, really early esports days. But at the time, I thought the world of it. I thought, you know, I was a 17-year-old kid that somebody paid to go to a tour. I thought I was the shit. You know, I thought I could take over the whole world at that point. But <laughs> yeah. But the reality okay. is, is that, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. You're, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you at all, man. I, I was just going to say I served uh, cafeteria food at a hospital when I was 17. So yeah, if I had your deal, I would think it was pretty sweet too. <laughs> that was all. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I worked at like Best Buy at the time as well. You know, like I, I still worked like, like shitty retail. I worked at Best Buy. I worked at this European restaurant. I was at Ikea for a little bit. Um, and everywhere I went, I would tell people like, I'm going to be a pro gamer. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do esports. Like, Oh, I have to take this time off to go to this tournament. And like, you know, when I would do that, it was so empowering. It was like the most like, oh yeah, I have to put in uh, three days off this weekend because I got to go to San Francisco to play Warcraft three in front of a crowd. <laughs> they got know? a hotel then, for me. You yeah, know. Dude, you know, it's, it's a big no deal. big deal. I'm just brushing off, big deal brushing off the shoulders a little bit, right? Like Some people ah, take yeah. time off to go to Disneyland, I, you know, <laughs> compete in national tournaments. I'm just gonna go get destroyed real quick. I'll be back, guys. <laughs> See you on Monday. And, and so, like for for me, that was incredibly empowering. But um from the business side of it, it was also, I was really lucky to have a mom, you know, I mentioned she supported me, even though she didn't understand it. Um, Cause like when I got the contract from Examius, for example, she was the first person I went to. I was like, Hey, I don't, I'm, I don't know anything about this. You know, what's a, what's a contract? <laughs> like, do I just sign the dotted line? Cause I want to sign right now. And she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, we're going to read this through. We're going to talk about this. You know, we're going to make sure that you're happy, that they're happy, that everyone has an understanding of, you know, she kind of taught me that whole process, which, which for a lot of people is, is really scary getting into for the first time. So I was really lucky that I was young when I got to do it. And also like esports was not the point where I was kind of getting swindled out of potentially, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So I consider myself lucky in that regard. And then also that like I had my mom where I could go to and and 
I wasn't embarrassed enough to ask for help from it, right? Um, and like she walked me through it and she treated it very seriously, which I think helped me a lot as well. Because more often than not, in my experience, at least in the early days, when people talk about getting paid for playing or they talk about getting signed to a team, it, it kind of was a joke for the most part, especially to people outside of the space, right? There's there's no money to be spoken of. There's no real career opportunity or career path. You know, you're talking about, oh, yeah, they want to sign you to what? Go to two events here? Like, sure, yeah, that'll save us hotel money. Cool. We would love to. Like, there is no legitimacy to it, whereas now it's very, very different. But the scary thing is, is that I didn't have much to lose if I fucked up that contract negotiation back then. I had nothing to lose, to be honest, right? But players today, they could be 17 years old and they could be qualifying for the Fortnite World Championship, you know, or, you know, Anna was 17 when he won the international for the first time, right? And Sumail was, what, 16 when he won the international for the first time. These are These are people that are, you know, freshmen in high school or sophomores in high school that are winning seven figures in a weekend. And like, I can't even, I consider myself pretty experienced in the industry. I can't even fathom being in that position where it's like, you have, you have no know-how of financial responsibility. You're still a minor, right? You have no idea what you're doing with your life, but you're, you're potentially, or you are the best person in the world doing the thing that you're doing. Like that, that mountain that they must have to like go through internally and mentally to to stay grounded and to not lose everything that they've acquired must be so insurmountable for some of those players um i think it's something honestly that the industry i hope they catch up in time in terms of that because like when you look at the nfl you look at the nba right even if you draft a player right out of high school they don't go the college route they still have like financial advisors and a ton of staff on the MBA where they go through media training and all of these processes that kind of mature them to the point where they can deal with that level of fame, that level of, of wealth and accountability as well. Right. You know, that's a big thing for a lot of these kids is like when we were kids, not everything was recorded. We weren't super famous and our faces plastered everywhere for them. It's the total opposite. So trying to figure out how to navigate that space especially when you're world famous, like I think there needs to be a lot more ground made in that direction in terms of how esports players and teams navigate that because we're way behind traditional sports in that regard. But if you compare us traditional sports, our professionals have far more engagement than any professional athlete, just period. Any pro gamer, the fact that they stream alone yeah. sets them aside, right? Um, I'm going to segue real quick here. It, yeah. Same topic though. But one of the things that I, I did at ESO was I would, I would talk at a lot of panels and, and, you know, conferences and things like that. Like they would always have, they would always want people from ESL to speak at these different events. And so they would always kind of ask us who wanted to do it or who was available to do it. And I, more often than not, I volunteered along with a couple of people because I love talking about the industry. Um, but we spoke to the Emmys panel because the Emmys were considering um, validating esports to, you know, to be able to award them categories outside of traditional sports, separate from traditional sports. Because one of the issues was like, you know, the 
you know, Riot would put on their League of Legends World Championship, and then it would be compared in the same category to like the Super Bowl, which is like for for the people that are voting on these things and the people that are watching, you know, those awards, it's not going to equate. It's not going to even be in the same conversation, right? But then for us, it's the total opposite. So one of the things I did to try and and give my perspective to the Emmy panel was like. You know, they were all much older than me. I say much older, but they were in like their their early 50s, late 40s, that kind of generation, right? Um, and I I explained to them like, listen, if you guys could pay five dollars a month to watch Michael Jordan indefinitely when he was a Bulls player, would you have? I didn't have a single person that say no, right? And then I would I would pull on that parallel more and more and more. I would like this is the equivalent to what fans of esports have access to now. If if the number one player in the world for any given game is streaming, not only can those fans go and engage with that player for free, they can talk to them, they can watch them while they practice, they can watch them and engage with them while they're playing any number of games, both for fun and serious competition. Like, and if you apply that to traditional sports, traditional sports fans start losing their fucking minds. You know, it's like for $5 a month, I could watch my favorite player do three-point shooting drills for the next three hours. I could watch their, you know, the scrim of the B team and the starting lineup, you know, play for the next two and a half hours. And you start There's drawing those parallels. They'll, they'll reply to me. Exactly, like, I right? Ask, I can they, engage they might actually with them. Say I can something ask in between three shots. Yeah. And you start drawing that parallel. And then it's like the, their eyes just widen more and more and more. And it's like it clicks in their head that it's, okay, this is the next step. This is the next thing where where there's that disconnect in traditional sports because athletes are sort of deified in that way. We have that deification in esports, but the difference is that you can engage in them with those esports players way more readily than you ever can with traditional sports players, right? Without some sort of uninhibited level of access, at least. And no, so that was that was yeah, really important, awesome. yeah, to try so, and so, draw that parallel I mean, for them. What I guess. There's a there. I, there's just a lot of. How do you even get invited to be on like a panel of people that is talking like to the like these people run the Emmys like yeah. like I guess like where or if anything else like what does that sound like to you when you hear somebody like was it a letter an email a phone um, call somebody's like hey we want you to present to the panel of people that are doing the Emmys like do you prepare yeah. a presentation for that was there a lot of lead up or was it kind of a thrown in the fire scenario like i think it's a good question um a couple different answers so first it in terms of this particular panel that the way that this happened was um they had reached out to us because um, we were doing projects with Sorry, I'm trying to be very careful in how I wear this. We were doing projects with specific networks at the time in terms of trying to develop ways that esports can go a little bit more mainstream in okay. terms of traditional TV. And so through that, um, the Emmy panel had kind of reached out to the company and they wanted to, to have this discussion, so to say, right? Because they were already... They had already been propositioned and, and considered and, and had a dialogue with a bunch of people in industry before, but they were in um, LA and then, you know, ESL's North America office is based in Burbank. ESL also has a, at least in North America, they also have a sales office in New York. But if you're talking to an ESL employee, 95% of them are going to be operating out of the Burbank office, at least in North America, right? There's also the German office and, and 
it was like 18 offices. But yeah, in North America, it's coming out of Burbank. So um, they reached out to us. And then there were a couple people that were automatically going to be included in that kind of discussion, right? So one of them is Cameron Reed. And Cameron Reed it was a director for ESL. Um, and then the other one was Will Chobra, who was a directive and creative producer. So they kind of gave the more technical and and not only that, but traditional takes on like how they could relate it, you know, um, an esports production to a traditional sports broadcast production. That way, in terms of justifying an Emmy nomination, you know, it, there are a lot of processes that are done the exact same way. It's just the content that is being delivered is very different, right? So they spoke to that and then the the reason that i was brought into that discussion was one eso was looking for more people to be involved and i like doing it so i i asked if you know they wanted me to do it but two is i can speak to the player perspective quite a bit and then i can also speak to the perspective of like somebody that is just a really big fan of esports and and will and um cameron are both huge fans of the game, but they didn't have that player perspective. So then being able to give the more technical production side, answer those questions to the people that are interested in, and then me sort of answer the the more communal-based questions, the questions about the players and, and their processes, it gave a more complete picture. And so that's why I was included in, in that panel of three from ESL. Um, and then in terms of like preparing for it, for I don't want to speak for Cameron or Will. I, everyone has kind of their own process for how they do it. But for me, it's, it's you know, all of this is already in my head just from my experiences, right? So I, I didn't have to like write anything out or necessarily plan what I was going to say. There are a couple topics that like the three of us kind of decided on like, hey, this is probably really relevant to you know, traditional sports or the traditional TV industry, we should bring these up to try and draw parallels so they can understand where we're coming from, from esports, right? So there were, things, there were things we identified in that regard, but a lot of it was just us bringing the knowledge that we had and then addressing their their questions and concerns because they had quite a bit. Um, you know, there were we each had our own section to speak and then there was kind of an open forum where the the panel could ask us a bunch of questions and this whole process took about two hours, right? And then at the end of that, it broke out and it was, you know, it was just a room full of people talking together and intermingling and, and handing out business cards and saying like, oh, we want a follow-up question, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it was, it was pretty seamless and flexible from my point of view, but also like incredibly nerve wracking, right? So like I felt, <laughs> and I don't think Will or Cameron felt the same because I asked them about it after the fact, but like I was, I was scared shitless. I was legitimately terrified. I was like, "Oh my god, what if I'm the reason that esports isn't at the Emmys?" Because I answered a question like in a really dumb way, or like you know, I tried explaining like a player or a fan perspective in a way that just doesn't click for them, and then they have this stigma of like, "Oh, these dumb kids that are gamers or whatever," right? <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I felt a lot of pressure leading up to that panel, and then once I was on it and and talking to people um it all went away because at the end of the day right they're professionals through and through and they're there for a very specific reason and they're there for work and we're professionals and we're there for work as well so like there is even though for some of them there is definitely a disconnect and understanding 
there is a, definitely a mutual respect that could like both be felt and heard in, in how they talk to us and how they answered questions. Because sometimes when people ask about esports, they ask in kind of a condescending way. You know, they'll mm-hmm. ask in like a way that kind of paints it as a joke. And like for us, we know that's not the case, but they just don't know any better. So um, I didn't feel that at all in that panel, which was like, again, that was really reassuring for me where it felt like I couldn't really fuck it up. But um, yeah, initially I was terrified. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm not a big Emmys watcher. So do you know the conclusion of that? Did, did the esports make it to the Emmys? Like where you, where um, you... I don't know if specifically our panel had influenced the final decision on that or not, right. but I know that there are traditional awards that esports can win now. I assume okay. that there were other panels that you know these companies had with other companies. Right. Like I imagine they probably also talked to Riot and and other big companies in Southern California. Like I also guarantee they probably did the same thing with Blizzard, right? Right. Um, right. But but for us, like we never really got much return after that from them in terms of like we would have dialogue back and forth answer more questions you know talk to them about things in industry but um once the panel happened that was that was it i we didn't hear about anything in regards to that panel ever again <laughs> that's fair um, that's fair. so it's, i'm it's not business yeah. works though yeah yeah it's i'm not no sure basis. i'm not sure if we're the reason that it all got it's nice to think about right but yeah, i would okay. also i wouldn't want to take away maybe somebody else gave an amazing you know, presentation at that panel and it just blew them away or something. So I don't know who did it, but whoever did it, hats off to you. I think it's the natural progression for the industry, right? Is getting recognized alongside your peers from other industries at these, at these communal award shows. So I've got a question that's, and I, I, I'll preface it with, I'm not really asking you to represent Psystorm's mm-hmm. position officially in this. Um, but just as someone who's been in all these different areas of the industry, like y- yourself, so, you know, Psystorm Gaming, you guys have players in StarCraft 2, Dota 2, um, Heroes of the Storm, Counter-Strike Global Offensive. How does a, a an esports organization, and again, doesn't have to be Psystorm Gaming specifically with those titles, but how does an esports organization decide what titles to even sponsor players for or, or recruit mm. players to play for? It's a good question. Um, I think it's, I think first part is it's very dependent on the team, on the esports organization, right? So to branch off from that, when I think of teams, I categorize them in, in one of two categories, right? So there are teams where their brand is competing, right? They're those their teams where they consist of players that are world-class competitors that are year in and year out going to be trying to become a world champion, period. That is their goal. That is what the team supports. And then there are teams where it's more about marketing and, and increasing the value of their brand, right? Um, I'm comfortable saying this because I don't think it ruffles any feathers and this is all super widely known, right? But like, a really good example of a team that focuses more on the brand than competition, I think, would be FaZe Clan, for example, right? FaZe Clan as a brand is is probably one of the easiest, most successful brands in esports, period. There's no argument there whatsoever, right? But in terms of like a competitor, when I think of FaZe Clan, I'm not thinking of world-class achievements. I'm not thinking of repeat offenders in terms of getting to a finals bracket over and over and over and over again, at least not anymore, right? Maybe eight years ago, maybe nine years ago, 
um, in the the COD and the Halo Glory days, but not not anymore, right? So that's the first thing, and that that first question, that first diversion, is gonna dictate what kind of players they go for, right? You might have a player that is capable of becoming a world-class competitor, but that's not their focus. They want to focus on their stream more or making YouTube content, or they want to focus on going to Twitch cons and PAX West and Eases and, you know, all of those South by South, all this stuff, right? Because that's part of promoting their brand and creating more content around their brand. Whereas, you know, then you have the opposite where you have players, competitors who they legitimately don't care about anything but competing. You know, I, if I ask them, hey, man, do you want to go to this PAX West in Seattle? And like you can appear at a booth, answer a couple of questions, you get a free trip, right? It'll be great for the team. It'll be great for you. You can promote yourself and be on stream and blah, blah, blah. blah. There are people who they'll not give a shit. It doesn't matter. You, you could offer them money. And if it interferes with in their mind how they're preparing for the next competition, they just won't do it. And it won't matter. And I, I respect that a lot personally um, because my personal stance on how teams should operate is you should decide which one of those two silos you're going into and commit to it as a team, right? And then you treat each player individually based on what they want to do, you know? So if you're a team that is a competitive team, your goal is to to have world champions on your roster and push for that narrative every year. But you have somebody that's like, hey, I'm sick of competing. I want to start focusing on content more. It's still your responsibility as a team to support that endeavor, right? You should still be able to put them in a position where they can succeed in that way. But I think maybe that's just a, a natural progression of those players. Whereas, you know, initially identifying which kind of player you want to go for is going to be dictated on which kind of team you are. Um, the next step is going to be, right, the return on investment, which you'll hear a lot of people talk about really kind of willy-nilly, which um is good and bad i think a lot of people set a really bad precedent when they talk about business and esports um so like to to be pretty clear right the vast majority of esports teams even some of the most famous ones that you guys are aware of operated a massive loss nobody's taking home the bank owning an esports team yet there's the 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 amount that are can be counted on a hand okay it's very 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 small um but that that doesn't mean that like that ROI should still be discounted. Just because you accept the fact that you're taking a short-term loss for a long-term gain doesn't mean that you can just take a loss everywhere. You still need to have smart business and business ethics. So when when thinking of signing a player, right, one of the things that you might consider is this player or this team what is their immediate impact, right? Which events are they going to be representing the team at for the rest of this year? What chance do they have at placing in those events? And you sort of assess them as a competitor and assess like, all right, they'll be at three lands this year. Chances are they'll be on stage at two of those lands. That means we can now go to investors and say like, hey, you're going to have three guaranteed appearances from X, Y, and Z players for your brand on these broadcasts. These are the average broadcast numbers. And that's when you start getting into KPI and metrics and deliverables in terms of sponsors and all that. Um, but it's it's like a symbiotic relationship between identifying the kind of team you are, identifying the kind of player based on that team that you are, um, identifying what you can market about that player to try and market them to sponsors to get more money to then support their endeavors, right? And it's this this huge system that has a bunch of interlinking parts that all impact and affect each other, right? Um, 
because you might have an amazing content creator that generates a lot of ROI for the team. And then you might have a player that is competing to be a world champion that generates no ROI for the team because their ROI comes from results, whereas the content creator comes from creating content, right? So you can get into weird positions where, you know, a content creator might actually be generating the revenue that pays for the competitor salary. But the only reason you could sign that content creator in the first place is because that competitor won a big tournament that'll let you get the sponsor to, you know, and then it becomes this weird cycle. Um, sorry, I know the original question was, was how do you, how do you identify? But a lot of those are, are big influencing factors in what you identify. And, you know, the other one is if you're, we, there are people in the space that are just huge fans of games or players and then they do it that way, you know, right? Like, I think I think KJ is a good example of this, right? KJ is like a pretty savvy business guy, but he's he doesn't work full-time in esports or anything like that, but he loves StarCraft, right? A big part of Psystorm being involved in StarCraft so much and then being around in StarCraft for as long as it has been is because of that, you know? As a business, it would be indefinitely smarter to take half of our budget and go apply it to any other game because the the amount of diminishing returns we're getting on supporting starcraft is very 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 little right because we already exist in that space we're already known in that space if we take that money and throw it anywhere else it's going to be way more valuable but that doesn't matter because that's what we want to do right at the end of the day you know there's a deep-seated love for starcraft in the rts community in our scene and you know, if we had $10,000 to do anything with, 75% of that is probably going to StarCraft, no questions asked, because that's what we want to support. So, you know, there's there's the different kinds of teams, there's the different kinds of players, how you manage both of those, then the business aspect, right? How you manage long-term support versus short-term growth, right? And then it's kind of, what do you want to do? Why are you involved in the space, right? And all of those, again, interact and kind of impact each other, but each one individually can be the defining reason for why that decision is made. Well, that's, so that's yeah, that, that's a fascinating answer. And again, you're not you're not going on too long about any of this or, or not answering the questions appropriately. This is all super, super fascinating. So, you know, you were just talking there about kind of the player selection process and the way that a team um, might look at organizing itself around the types of players at once. And then also a little bit about the, the games that you're supporting. And so that's another question I guess I have is, and again, I don't, it doesn't have to be from the perspective of Psystorm gaming at all, but are, you know, you, you compete team to team in a tournament or something, right? But then is there also a larger sense of competition between the games? Like, for example, you guys have players in Dota. Are you looking at, at League of Legends and, and you're on mm. team Dota or does it not even really get into that space does that make sense at all as a question yeah no i think it, it makes sense and i think it's a really good question um so me personally i look at that kind of thing as a purely a business decision right so for me unless we're unless we're a team where our through budget for a year is multiple millions of dollars which we're not right um i think when you have and i already mentioned it a little bit right but when you share a space, you have pretty severe diminishing returns within that space, right? So if we're looking at the mobile market specifically, right, you have Smite, you have Dota 2, you have Heroes of the Storm, you have League of Legends on your phone, you had Arena of Valor, you had Brawl Stars, right? You have like all these different 
um, games that are technically a MOBA, right? So if I get a Dota 2 team and and we're invested in that, and then down the line I want to get a Here's the Storm team or a League of Legends team, you still get an incredible amount of value out of branching into other games, even though they share a genre, right? Um, because there's still going to be fans of those games. Like there's League of Legends fans that will never watch a Dota 2 broadcast or never play Dota 2. So maybe they'll never hear of our team because, you know, they're not watching Dota 2. But then now we bring it over to League of Legends. Now all of a sudden we have the ability to potentially capture those fans, right? Like kind of win their hearts and minds, so to say, right? Um, and that opportunity doesn't exist unless we're in League of Legends for a large portion of that fan base. There's always some trickle down percentage, right? No matter what. But like for the majority of that fan base, we're just not going to exist unless we're in that game. So I think that's one part of identifying it, right? Is like, is this going to be worth the cost of basically generating two footprints in the same genre? Um, for some games, it absolutely is. For some games, it absolutely isn't, right? Um, when you look at games like Valorant and Counter-Strike, they're they're very similar in terms of their FPS games, but I look at I categorize them completely differently, right? I categorize Counter Strike as a traditional FPS, and then I I categorize Valorant as a class FPS, right? So when I think of class FPS, I think of Valorant, Overwatch, Team Fortress 2, right? Those are the easiest ones that pop in my mind. And then I think of traditional FPS, maybe even Rainbow Six can fall in that category, right? And then I think of traditional FPSs, right? You know, it's the counter strikes, the crossfires, you know, what have you, the the ones where you're not pre-selecting a class with specific abilities before the match starts. Um, everybody, no matter their class or no matter their character select, is the exact same. Um, there's a lot of value in existing in both spaces, and there's a lot of value in co hard committing to one space in the FPS, you know, genre, and then taking, instead of doubling down in the class FPS and traditional FPS, you pick one and then you go to another game. Because even though you're gonna have some cross-pollination from the class FPS and traditional FPS players, and you kind of create like a, your own sub-community of fans, which is really cool, because like, oh, these guys are fans of Psystorm FPS games. These guys are fans of Psystorm class FPS games. Well, they both have something they can relate to. You know, even though this the Counter Strike person isn't watching Valorant ten hours a day, they see Psystorm and they're a fan of Psystorm. Hopefully, that gets them to tune in, right? Um, and so you're trying to you're trying to kind of build that like sub community of fans where it's like you guys are all FPS players, you can relate a little bit, and and that's where the again, sorry, there's like four different branches, right? But that's where the diminishing returns comes into play, and then the identifying like. Um, are these subclasses of the same genre or they all fall into the same genre, right? Um, I wouldn't consider StarCraft II and Age of Empires to be different. They're both core RTSs in my mind, right? There's not like massive things that delineate them from each other. But who knows, maybe whatever Frost Giant comes out with, right? Maybe it'll be a very specific type of FPS. Maybe it's where you select your race and then there's a large amount of commanders for each race and then you know you have to select a commander at the beginning of the map right where maybe there's a band draft sequence for that process and then now you have players having to master multiple races or multiple commanders to combo with those races because theirs get banned out and so on and so forth and then now we've created a whole new genre of rts that we retain value in for putting money in as opposed to you know starcraft where we've already put so much in that anything we put in we're not going to get as much back for 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it generally speaks kind of as you were saying earlier to like brand awareness too, is that if you develop trust within your fans, within the brand, if that brand picks up something new or moves in a different mm-hmm. direction, or even if they just see, you know, I mean, there's, I wasn't an, I was an age of mythology player for a little while, like oh, yeah, really dude. casually, like laser gators was just my thing. But then, you know, Egypt I didn't think broken, about it. Dude. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. I loved it. But, but I didn't think about it for like 10 years. Right. And because of Starcraft, I saw some Starcraft streamers start picking back up Age of Empires. Mm-hmm. And because I trusted those streamers or, you know, the clans or the groups that they played with. And I was aware of seeing like, oh, I know some of these teams. I know some of these players. Yeah. I don't really care about Age of Empires, but now I'm going to watch because I Again, sometimes it's the content. Like, I don't care if they win or lose. I know this is going to be a good time. It's going to be funny or amusing or insightful or whatever. And I could trust the brand that they're playing behind. So I'm in. I'll watch. And now I'm watching another 10 hours of content that I wasn't going to watch anyway. So, yeah. I mean, that's how fans are. That's how a lot of fandom is created, right? You know, I I can't think of anybody where it's like, if you ask them, hey, what was the first esport you ever watched or got involved in? Very, very few people are going to answer that they still act like that's their still main esport today as it was right. 10 years ago or whatever, right? Like you look at most people, even in industry, as working professionals, the majority of them started in StarCraft in some capacity or, yeah. or like were inspired by StarCraft in some capacity or, you know, I'm not giving enough credit to the other games from that era as well. Quake and Counter-Strike I mean, as well, right? Like the, the big years, three of League esports. Of Legends. Yeah, League of Legends is Yeah, still... I mean, yeah, yeah. We can go we can go back like 15 years, right? Like the the Brood War days, right? right the right. the Thresh Quake Champions days. Like um Quake was a Quake and Unreal Tournament had a lot. They they aren't given as much credit anymore. They were as... they were the first technically speaking, they mm-hmm. were the first esport. They had the first tournament where a player, a player was paid prize money. Mm-hmm. They had the first tournament where a player won something of monetary value over the worth of $10,000. And they also were the first game to have repeat tournaments where they yep. did it every year for the, I think, two years before Counter-Strike had its first event. Um, yeah, I mean, they're definitely the pathfinders for esports, right? There's a lot of people today that have no idea who they are i i it's funny i'm sorry tangent i remember an admin i worked with um years ago like seven or eight years ago and they legitimately thought that hearthstone was the first esport and i was like oh you sweet summer child like you have no idea what you're getting involved in let me just give you a bunch of links here real quick and like, you know, I couldn't, it wasn't like a talking shit to them thing, but it was like, you just don't know what you don't know. And they were like, they were great at their job, right? They're a good admin and they're legitimately excited for gaming and esports. It's just, that was their first ever interaction or introduction, right? And it's like, you know, you take that to today's standards. Imagine a kid walking up to any of us and be like, wow, esports is so cool. Can you believe Fortnite's the first esport? Like, you know, internally, I'm going to be laughing my ass off. Right. Externally, I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so we wouldn't be remiss if we didn't uh, ask, you know, the tagline of our show, we kind of spoken about it a little bit before, is, is why gaming matters. And there are so many avenues. This question can mean so much to every different person. But when you hear the, the phrase, why does gaming matter to you? Uh, how does that speak to you and and why do you think gaming matters to you? 
Yeah, I think it's an important question. Um, I think it's one of the most important questions, honestly. And it's something that like, I feel like doesn't get talked enough in the public eye. It's something that's talked a lot about a lot about internally in industry because one of the ways that we're able to decide you know how valuable something might be or how well it might be received is is with the people that work in industry that are hardcore fans of the industry right we kind of use them as our litmus test myself included and and i would say to me the thing that makes gaming matter the most um and esports matter the most is your ability to connect with people like there are colleagues that I genuinely love that I like, they will be friends for life. And I maybe get to see them once a year, if that, because you know, they live in a completely different country and a completely different time zone and we're working on completely different projects. So the only time we'll ever see each other is at this one, you know, instance of a LAN event. Um, and, and there's like, I have a lot of friends, people that are really near and dear to me that fall under that category. And, and like, I think that's really cool. And I think that's really abnormal. Um, you know, like if I look at people I grew up with in high school and stuff, I, I can't go to them and, and think like, you know, you have friends in every major country on the planet essentially. And, and like think that they have that same shared experience. Whereas like for me, I was, I grew up in that environment, right? I, I like, I grew up experiencing these other cultures from people around the world and and challenging each other and helping each other and working together and working against each other like that was a that was a pretty that was a pretty intense steam cooker as somebody that was like was a, a minor maturing in that environment where i think it gave me a lot of really good perspectives and it gave me a lot of ways of thinking about people that were different than me and like accepting them right because because when you grow up in california or just in america you're not exposed to a ton of other cultures right you, you know like in california we, there's a lot of spanish culture hispanic culture and then other than that it's just kind of the people you live around so for me that was super awesome to be able to you know play super late in the night and talk to the student in the netherlands and talk to him over mumble or team speak or whatever it was and talk to him in BattleNet and work on these builds and you know more importantly just talk about our problems be friends right talk about our stupid teachers that didn't understand gaming and you know wouldn't let you get a homework extension to go to this tournament talk about you know fucking sean i always think of when i talk about this example i always think of sean's example of uh, when he does the My Life of Starcraft video, he has the girlfriend that typed GG in double capital letters instead of the double lowercase and it like annoyed him to no end, right? It's it's things like that where like you have these shared experiences because you're part of the gaming community. You know, the how all of us can relate a little bit about explaining to other people outside of gaming about how cool and important this thing was or trying to convince our parents that like, it's not a waste of life, right? Like these are shared experiences that anyone that grew up in this era has. And even today people have to an extent, right? So I think having that connection, being able to talk about those things, not just the games that we were doing together, but life together was like, it was pretty defining for me. I don't think I would be the person I am today, just me personally, like my personality without having that experience. 
without without trying to really put myself in my friend's shoes and understanding the things that they're struggling with, even if I couldn't understand what it was at all, because like, you know, maybe that issue didn't exist in America or maybe that issue didn't exist to me personally. Right. But, but being in that situation where you're, you're, you're exposed to that, I think was really, really good for me. Um, I imagine it's very similar to like, like, I don't know how it was for you guys, but at my high school, at the end of senior year, they had like this trip where everyone could go to Europe for the summer or something. I, I couldn't go because like we grew up super broke, right? <laughs> so I didn't have the opportunity, but I got the I got that opportunity through StarCraft and Warcraft 3. You know, I got to experience a bunch of other cultures and, and make a bunch of friends that I still know and keep in touch with to this day, you know, 13, 14, 15 years later, because of because of going through that together and 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 being able to just be a part of that community. So yeah, I think the connections we build are are by far the most important thing because like before the internet, nothing like this could happen. I, I maybe, you know, what did our parents have? Like the pen pal memes, right? Where they wrote letters and stuff. But like, I didn't have to write a letter and then wait two weeks for a reply or three weeks to reply. I could send a message and talk to somebody across the world right now and we could talk about our problems right now we could talk about what's going on in the news right now and have that unfiltered unbiased you know um experience and i think that's probably one of the most valuable things that gaming has ever provided is that ability for people to connect across the globe um with one thing right just that one fundamental thing that everybody kind of shares and understands and loves so yeah I think that's a, a really, really beautiful answer. Um, and that's that's something that, that definitely resonates for both of us as well and, and is a huge part of, of why gaming matters to us so much also is is just, the, as you put it, the relationship aspect, right? Um, so that's awesome. Well, Brian, we have absolutely loved having you on the show tonight. Um, we'd love to have you back again, honestly, because there's yeah, a ton of questions. There's that so I much that we ask. didn't get to. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, I would absolutely love to set that up. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, we will have, uh, we'll, we, we definitely will link to your Twitter in the show notes uh, and we'll link to SciStorm Gaming's website. Is there anywhere else that, that fans should should reach out to, to connect with you or SciStorm Gaming at? Um, I think, I think that's probably fine. I don't really, so just like for us, right? Like I don't advertise myself too much because I think as League Ops, if I become famous, something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when the referee is becomes just as famous as the people that are playing the games or the <laughs> sports, something is terribly, terribly wrong. So mm -hmm. my Twitter is perfectly fine. I think I for me, I'm good at leaving it at that. Um, in terms of the team, just the team website and then the team Twitter, I think both are good and, and you could probably leave it at that would be my guess. Okay, perfect. Cool. Well, we'll make sure and do that. Uh, well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it being here. Thank yes, you guys right. for having me. So that's all for the episode today. If you like this episode, consider buying us a cup of coffee at our Ko-Fi page, which is ko-fi.com slash pod. Or just tell a friend about us because word of mouth really does make a difference. All of our links and social accounts are available in the show notes. And if you want to hear more from either of us on topics outside of gaming, Walker's podcast, The Walk Show, talks about the walk of life while interviewing various guests. And my other podcast, Dungeons and Dinners, is where the love of fantasy is food for thought. Mm -hmm.